Please turn with me, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 16. We'll be reading uh, verses 5 through 14. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimgai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimgai said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you son of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimgai went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. If you would now um, turn with me um, over to Psalm 7. I think you're probably not surprised that Psalm 7 is actually the text for today, though, again, we're doing things um, a little bit out of, out of order, maybe a little bit out of the sequence we're used to on a regular um, Sunday. I'm sure it didn't um, surprise you or catch you unaware that we, we actually read Psalm 7 as our responsive reading, and yet we uh, just read through 2 Samuel 16. Now, the, the reason I did this, though, is that 2 Samuel 16 give, gives context to what may have driven David's prayer of Psalm 7. And so I wanted to help you with some of that background context um, right at the beginning so we could have an idea of what maybe David was going through. What we find in this psalm is the flow from the intensely personal plea of a man who is betrayed and hounded to the conviction that God is judge of all the earth and that wickedness is self-defeating. And then this psalm ends with confidence and praise. And some of the key words that we see throughout the psalm um, are salvation, righteousness, and justice or judgment. And Psalm 7 uh, begins with the title, as is typical of the Psalms, and this one reminds us that it is attributed to David, yet the rest of the details are um, somewhat lost to history. It opens with a shigaon of David, which he sang to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, shigaon is a musical term, or at least that's what scholars believe, and this is the only psalm with this designation. Um, the only other place in scripture where this uh, term uh, appears is in its plural form in Habakkuk 3. Um, scholars 
do do attempt to, to determine what might be the root of it and how it might impact the, the, the psalm, but it's um, of little value to us because we wouldn't necessarily really uh, understand the rhythm or, or what it plays into. So again, it's kind of lost to us on history. Furthermore, nothing is known of the man Cush. All we are told is that he is from the tribe of Benjamin, and nothing more is recorded elsewhere in Scripture to reference this man. However, in Absalom's rebellion, it revealed that the tribe of Benjamin, from which Saul came, that they harbored some bitter feelings against David. And this is why 2 Samuel 16 may add some insight into this psalm and into what David was experiencing from the antagonizing of Cush. From the account of 2 Samuel 16, you can see that these attacks really wearied um, the men of David. They were already fleeing Jerusalem for their lives from the rebellion of Absalom. They had to leave most of their worldly possessions and, and leave in haste. And this would add an emotional toil along with the betrayal and, and all the emotions that must have uh, been coursing through David's soul at that time. And then additionally, you have the haste of the journey itself and the travel, uh, which would have been exhausting. And now we have a bitter Benjaminite hurling stones and, and insults at the king and his companion, companions. And so Samuel records, and the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. Now we hear the prayer of David. O Yahweh, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. And so our first point this afternoon is run to God in times of trouble. We see that here in verses 1 through 5. Well, with these first two opening verses, you can see the picture of a persecuted man seeking shelter and salvation. It is especially noted in the use of the words like refuge and save and deliver in verse 1. And then it's repeated again at the end of verse 2 with the word deliver. Verse 2 also echoes the emotions of the psalmist in the two phrases that describe the feeling of his soul as being torn apart and rent to pieces. The psalmist then continues his prayer in verse 3, bemoaning his innocence. O Yahweh, my God, if I have done this. And it's interesting that it seems like he starts in the middle of a thought. And if we were reading slowly and we pause there, we might ask, done what? Have you ever been sitting in the living room with friends or family or at the dining room table and you're kind of lost in your own train of thought? And, um, and then as you're sitting there, you, you blurt something out as if, the rest of the, the family and friends knew exactly what you were thinking. And you might say, I definitely think that we should buy one. You might declare, and everyone looks at you bewildered, and they say, what in the world are you talking about? And, and your response might be, well, a new lawnmower. I mean, look outside. Look how tall that grass is. We, you know, aren't you following my thoughts? We, we need a new lawnmower. And so... If we, again, if we read it slowly, we might be wondering, what is David talking about, if I have done this? But fortunately, as he continues, um, we see and we can understand what he means. He feels as though he is being judged for something that he has not done. 
And so again, verses 3 through 5. O Yahweh my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. We have here three if clauses. And these three clauses note a confession of possible sin in ignorance. So David's saying, maybe, if this is so, possibly I have sinned in a a way that I hadn't realized. But the author is convinced that the claims are unwarranted. There is a sense of, no, this isn't true. I have dealt rightly. And interestingly, David is not unwilling to acknowledge that God would or could use the wickedness of his enemies as a form of justice against his his sins if he was in the wrong. So he acknowledged, you know, perhaps my enemies are are attacking me because of my sin. Uh, And he's he's willing to uh, accept their judgment on him if this is true. But again, he's convinced that it's not true. And this reminds me of uh, the the same defense of Job when his friends uh, appeared and, and began to accuse him. Job acknowledged that, that yes, people um, face the curse of God when, when they do these various forms of injustice. But Job is saying, this wasn't me. I, I'm not being punished for my sins. Um, in Habakkuk 1, however, Habakkuk first asked God when he was going to bring justice to the wickedness of the Israelites. But then Habakkuk was surprised that God would use the wicked Babylonians to bring uh, the Israelites to justice. He pled, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So, again, David was willing to accept the persecution of his enemies against him if he had done wrong. But he's convinced, God, I have not done this, and yet these men pursue me. Yet David used this argument to plead his innocence, and as his prayer continues, you can sense his virtue as he asks for the righteous anger of God to be directed toward his tormentors instead. And this is our call, to rest in the righteous justice of God. We see this in verses 6 through 11. Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. Judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Verses 6 through 11 carry a theme of God's anger against sin, unrighteousness, and injustice. Note the similar terms that create a parenthesis of this section uh, in verses 6 through 11. By the use of the word anger in verse 6, with indignation in verse 11. God is the angriest person in the Bible. He hates sin, yet he is gracious and merciful by withholding his justice for a time to allow mankind to repent. It may may be a surprise for you to consider 
that God is the angriest person in Scripture. In fact, he's the angriest person in the universe. But here's the good news. God hates sin so much that he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to, to take the punishment that our sin deserves and to apply his righteousness to his people. He gave us his Holy Spirit to live in us and his work to guide us. Peter wrote, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. Because of God's anger with sin, we are called to and given the means to progress in sanctification, purging ourselves of sin to become more like Christ. Let's consider again the words of David here in verse 6. The beauty of Hebrew parallelism is observed in the progression of arise, lift yourself up, and awake in verse 6. And then in verse 7, he concludes, over it, return on high. This cry for God to arise or stand reminds me of the song, Stand up, O God, be present now. I'm sure that's a hymn you're familiar with. And I thought about it as I was writing that into my notes that I probably could have picked that as one of our songs for the service. Um, And I didn't, but it's a beautiful and powerful song. And it's not that God is not standing and awake and ready to act, but sometimes in the situations of our life, it doesn't seem like it. And here's some good news, though. God understands your feelings, and God has preserved in his word for you that he knows exactly from where you are coming, how your heart aches. And he allows you to pray And to sing and to cry, arise, O Lord, lift yourself up, awake for me. And he put it in his word for us to cry and pray it back to him. The psalmist makes this his plea, but he demonstrates that he knows it to be true. The language throughout this section is related to war and battle. That God should arise is a pre-battle song. The psalmist also confesses that God is his shield. His protection in battle. And later too we will see that God does ready himself. As the warrior king for action in verses 12 and 13. Verses 8 and following note that David knows that Yahweh sits enthroned to judge. Yet his cry in verses 6 and 7 is that he doesn't feel that way to him. It, it, It does not feel that way to him. He is pleading for Yahweh to act according to his character. In verse 6 the psalmist contrasts. God's righteous anger with the unrighteous fury of his enemies. The other subtle connection in verse 6 is with the word judgment. Because anger and fury are always a judgment call. Anger is a response to a judgment of perceived injustice. Here, God's anger is right and the fury of David's enemies is wicked. Verse 8 continues David's prayer for judgment. While in verse 6 he notes that Yahweh has appointed judgment, in verse 8 he acknowledges that Yahweh judges, and then he pleads, judge me. David was filled with the Holy Spirit and trusted in, in the imputed righteousness of Christ in the, same day that we do, in the same way that we do today. He did that by faith. David looked forward in faith, just as we look back in faith, at the active and passive work of Jesus is applied to those who put their faith in him. For this reason, David was willing to stand for judgment because Yahweh was his God. He knew that he was not perfect. He knew the extent of his sin. Yet he also knew that his heart and mind 
belonged to a righteous God. And that's why he declared, my shield is with God. So in verse 9, David contrasts the evil of the wicked that he prays would come to an end with a prayer that God would establish the righteous. Previously, David stated that Yahweh judges the people. As a play on the word judge, he restates that God is the one who tests the heart and the mind. The word here for test is the same used for testing metals by melting them down. Melting metals tells a lot about their composition. Also, the heating and the melting of the metals purifies them by separating the dross and other elements that melt at different temperatures. This is metaphorical language for what God does in testing the hearts and minds of men. Note as well that God's testing is done righteously. He does not test or tempt with the intent to lure someone into sin. So why does God test us? To strengthen our faith and to progress our sanctification. And James reminds us of this. In James 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, To count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is acknowledging what so many authors of Scripture have, have recorded. You will face trials and testings of a variety of types. Many will face suffering within their trials, and our response must be as David's. We must stand in the righteousness of Christ and rest in God's justice. James is telling us that the reason we face these trials is so that we can be purified in the process of sanctification. Verses 10 and 11 resolve David's prayer for salvation and righteous judgment. When he states, my shield is with God, it reminds me of Yahweh's own covenantal language with Abram from Genesis 15.1. Yahweh said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And it causes me to wonder if David is aligning himself with the covenantal people of God by rehearsing Yahweh's own language. David is declaring that he stands with God. He relies on God as the righteous judge of the universe who saves the upright in heart. Who are the upright in heart? Those who by faith trust in him alone. David knows the character of God, and he wants to side with the righteous judge of the universe. And so he acknowledges, God is righteous, and his anger burns against the wicked every day. And this led David, and now us, to contemplate repentance. This is our third point, repent from wickedness. Verses 12 through 16 then point to God's treatment and perspective of the wicked and the need for us to live in repentance. This section also demonstrates the futility of wicked behavior. The text says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Have you repented of your sins? 
What is repentance and what does it mean to repent? Well, to repent is to turn away from your sin. From the New Testament, it often holds an understanding of changing your mind. We are called to reject our sin. And sins are those things that we do that God has commanded us not to do and are not doing the things that he has commanded us to do. And as we forsake our sin and fleshly cravings, we cling to the imputed righteousness of Christ in faith. We rest on the active and passive work of Christ as he lived the righteous life that we could not and died the death that we could not. This is the only way to meet the just requirements of a holy God. And as we read that last section, did you observe the series of preparation verbs in verses 12 and 13 that reflect the parallelism of these clauses? The first verb is the wetting of the sword. This is the sharpening of the sword before battle. Now, speaking of the testing of, with the sword, perhaps you recall to mind Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God judges by dividing those things that seem indivisible. Yahweh's sword is sharp, and that sword is his word that he will use to judge the wicked when he comes again. Revelation 19.15 tells us of that day and speaks of Christ. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The second and third verbs are paired together as the bending and readying of the bow. This could have two meanings, but both are preparation verbs of action for battle. The first interpretation could be the bending of the bow in order to string it or to, to restring it for use. The second could be the bending action of the bow as the arrow and string are pulled in preparation to let the arrow fly to his target. Either way, it is the preparation of the the bow to be used in battle. The same Hebrew word is used in verses 12 and 13 that the ESV translated for readying the bow in verse 12 and the word prepared in verse 13. The sword and the bow are the deadly weapons that God has prepared for the wicked. And then the psalmist concludes, God makes the arrows fiery shafts. And this too is a preparation verb as fire is touched to the arrows, readying them to be hurled. And these last two verses mark God's readiness for justice. The psalmist focuses his attention on the wicked, who are those who have not repented. David uses a series of pregnancy words here. First in the process of pregnancy is conception. The wicked first give life to their evil thoughts and intentions. Then in their state of pregnancy, they grow and mature and nurture their evil with mischievous deeds, which then give birth to lies. James uses the same imagery. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this metaphorical language is to stand as a warning of the progression of sin. David further warns of the foolishness and even ironic justice of the wicked and their sin. The wicked man falls into the very hole that he dug out with his own two hands. An entire sermon or lesson could be given on ironic justice in Scripture. But I think that we can all recall the example of Haman, who is impaled on the very stake that he put in his yard with which to kill Mordecai. 
The other example is the wicked satraps and administrators in Daniel's day. In Daniel 6, they conspired for Daniel to be cast in the lion's den. But because of their own wickedness, they and their families were tossed into the lion's den to be crushed and eaten. The psalmist reiterates, the mischief of the wicked falls back upon himself. And as the saying goes, that he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. The violence of the wicked comes full circle back upon him. Proverbs 118 reports, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. So what do we do with this information? We do the same thing as David. And this is our fourth point, to respond in praise to Yahweh. Verse 17, I will give to Yahweh the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh, the Most High. As David reflected on the righteous justice of God, it led him to praise and worship. Considering the character of God should likewise lead us to praise. What have we learned from this psalm? Well, we noted that God is righteous. Everything God does is right. We learn that God is the angriest person in the universe and in Scripture. Again, perhaps this struck you as strange. Maybe you never thought about that before. But we can rejoice that because of God's anger with sin and wickedness, He sent us a Savior who can purge us of our unrighteousness and reconcile us to Himself. We learn that God is just. When we note injustice in this life, we acknowledge that one day, the wicked behavior of every man will be judged and sin will be punished. It is in considering these attributes of God that we can respond in praise for who he is. As David declares, he is Yahweh most high. I don't know what enemies may be pursuing you today or at this stage of your life. We are warned in scripture that the righteous will face persecution. In 1 Peter, the epistle of hope. My New Testament professor happens to be with us today, and um, I'd like to think that he gleams uh, a little bit of pride um, as his student remembers that First Peter is the epistle of hope. And Peter reminds the church in, in chapter 4, in verses 12 through 19, that we will suffer as Christians. Suffering for Christ is a blessing. There is a judgment that both the church and the world will receive from God, and our hope must be in our God, creator of heaven and earth. And these verses from 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 are like a, a sermonette, a mini sermon on Psalm 7. And Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator 
while doing good. So we are called to holiness, even as we are called to experience suffering in this life. Note that the judgment of God also begins with his church. It is wise, therefore, to consider whether it is from the effects of our own sin with which we are experiencing suffering. This is what David attempted to do. Even in declaring his own innocence, he at least acknowledged that if he had done wrong, he deserved to suffer at the hands of his enemies. Is there sin in our lives of which we must repent? Probably. And it is possible that the suffering you may be going through now may be the result of your own sin, but perhaps someone else's sin against you. Either way, God desires that we grow in sanctification as we live through the travails of this life. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul commanded the church to avoid sin because God's will for us is sanctification. And as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.13, the situations of our life may not change. And yet God is faithful to give us a way out that we may respond to the suffering, temptation, or testing without resorting to a sinful response. And I know that that can be very difficult. I have to preach this to myself every day to remind myself that regardless of the temptations and the, the, the suffering that I think that I'm being put through, that it is not right for me to lash out in a sinful way or to respond in sin. God does not need to change the behavior of your children for you to not obey not to respond in a simple way or for God to change your spouse and not you. No, we're, we're called that regardless of the situation, whatever that enemy is that is pursuing us, that we have a way out and that God calls us and expects us to respond in holiness. Heed the warning of this passage to keep a short list of the sins in your life that require your repentance And use the warning that is offered here to give you courage to share the hope of the gospel. Don't let the fear of man keep you from warning others that the weapons of God's justice are readied against those who refuse to repent. And if you are here today and you have never repented of your sin, there is no need to wait. Turn from your sin today. Repent. Turn to Christ today. Don't leave here today if you have... Any questions of where you stand before the righteously angry God of the universe? Finally, praise God that he has given us Christ as our righteousness. God is our shield and his righteous justice will prevail. Let's close in prayer.